0: Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get fifteen percent off your first order when you use wnyc at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code wnyc at checkout for fifteen percent off.
1: Listener supported, wnyc studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think how did i live this long and not know that radio lab adventures on the edge of what we think we know listen wherever you get podcasts
2: This is All of It. I'm Alison Stewart. Dan Jones is a historian known for making the Middle Ages seem exciting. He's written many best-selling histories about the Crusaders, the Knights of Templar, the War of the Roses. He has a podcast and a show exploring castles on Netflix. But now Dan can add novelists to his long resume with his debut, Essex Dogs. The novel draws on Dan's extensive knowledge to tell the story of a tight-knit troop fighting in the 100 years war in France. There's a large, burly Scotsman, a 16-year-old expert archer, a completely lapsed priest, and their captain named Loveday Fitztalbot, who just wants to make sure his men get home and get paid. But will they all make it out alive? And is the conflict in France enough to tear the Essex dogs apart? Crookers Reviews calls the novel, quote, an enjoyable romp through the darkest of ages. And Dan Jones joins me now. Dan, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So obviously you are first and foremost known in your career as a historian. When did you decide to become a novelist?
1: Well, all the way through the sort of... I guess, the first 10, 15 years of my writing career. People kept asking me when I was going to write a novel as though it was a (laughs) given, you know. So the way I'd approach nonfiction over, I guess, I think 10 nonfiction books was very sort of... um, biography-led, colourful, cinematic kind of style of storytelling allied with all the historical research underpinning it. And I guess that sort of suggested that I might one day get round to writing a novel. But actually, I, I didn't believe that I would. I was kind of terrified by the idea of switching out of nonfiction into fiction because it's um, it's really scary. I felt like you're bearing a lot more in fiction. And so I was, I was resistant for a very long time um, until two things I suppose happened one was that I had an idea certainly of an opening scene for a, a, a book that could only be done as fiction and that was to tell the story of a platoon of ordinary ordinary soldiers in the middle ages um, and the second was I I kind of turned 40 and I wrote 10 books and I just had this feeling those round numbers were trying to tell me something and that if I didn't do uh, if I didn't make the jump from nonfiction to fiction now then i might i might never do it and end up regretting it when i was 80.
2: you write in your acknowledgements yet even then i dithered it was not until that summer after a wide-ranging conversation over dinner with george r R. martin a history lover whose works of fiction i admire enormously that something clicked what did you talk about
1: (laughs) well george was in london so this would have been the summer of 2019 i guess um George was in London en route to Dublin, Ireland, because he was going to Comic Con, I believe. And we did a kind of on stage conversation in for a thousand people in London. And we talked he was then promoting his book Fire and Blood, which was this this quote unquote popular history. Uh, Well, the the histories, quote unquote, of the Targaryen dynasty, which is now um, the the big new HBO TV series. So we talked a little. Well, we talked a lot about the process of writing history to make it exciting. And we, I got the sense in our public conversation of just how, uh, just how much of a history lover George is. I kind of knew, but it was the depth of interest in history as well as his interest in great storytelling. And then when we went out for dinner afterwards. Um, we just continued that theme, really. you know, his his deep love for all things historical, particularly the Middle Ages, was extremely impressive, uh, his knowledge and his passion. But what I came away from the conversation thinking was, well, here's a guy who's doing a lot of the same work that I'm doing in my nonfiction books, but is kind of producing a, a radically different product and seems to be having so much fun doing it and so the the nerves and the apprehension i guess i'd felt for a long time about the prospect of writing fiction gave way to a sense of uh, excitement at the possibilities if one approached fiction um with a sense of mischief and fun but also with the kind of rigorous love for the historical material that i'd, I'd seen in george who is is one of the great living writers i believe
2: how did you land on the Hundred Years' War as the backdrop for this story? And remind people why England and France were at war when we meet the Essex Dogs.
1: Well, I'd written a lot about this period before. So I'd written a book called The Plantagenets. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd written a book about the Wars of the Roses. And, and these, both of these books in different ways touched on relations between England and France in the 14th to 15th centuries. The Hundred Years' War, um, contrary to its name, lasted for somewhat more than 100 years. And it was a, a, a sprawling... There's a sprawling interconnected series of wars between the English, the French, but also the Scottish, the Castilians, the Flemish, and a bunch of other people besides. At root is an argument, is is a very petty argument, really, between kings Mm -hmm. who all want each other's crown. That's what it boils down to. The kings of England want to be kings of France as well. They're greedy. Um, And they take with them, well, for example, in the Cressy campaign, which is what Essex Dogs describes, Edward III takes an army of 15,000 men Across the English Channel from England to the beaches of Normandy. I mean, it really is D-Day only in 1346 <laughs> instead of 1944. Lands them on, well, it's just up the coast from what was Utah Beach in 44, and then leads them on this campaign that really does resemble, in many senses, the um, the, the the Normandy campaign of 1944. Uh, they burn a swathe through the Norman countryside. They cross rivers, they sack cities, they end up in this enormous battle in Cressy. I was interested in telling a story of medieval warfare, which I'd written a lot about from the perspective of knights, nobles, kings, you know, the, the kind of officer class. I was interested in telling that story from the perspective of ordinary people, because as a history writer, I was, I was sort of acutely aware all the time I was working on it, that this was an inaccessible story. For a history writer, there are no you can 't make band of brothers set in the middle Ages because there aren 't soldiers' diaries that would allow you to draw on that, so you can 't write the the real history so this was a project that I felt could only be attacked via fiction. We would have to create these characters and then render their experience on campaign um realistic via uh, the tools of historical research and the hundred years, so the hundred years War felt like a a, a very promising um Place in which to set this book because I felt like modern readers, having seen things like Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, and so on, would feel like they kind of knew this landscape. They know what they know what the landing of the Normandy beach is like if they've ever seen the Bob Kappa photos or you know or watched Saving Private Ryan. And yet here it is, six hundred years earlier in medieval costume. I felt like that would be a very interesting sort of creative combination.
2: Did you feel a sense of responsibility in any way giving? as you describe them, ordinary people a voice?
1: Yeah, I think I did. And I felt a sense of, I wouldn't quite call it righteous anger, but it wasn't far away from it at some points. You know, I'd i would written so much from the other point of view. You know, you write about these these campaigns in history books and you tend to be whether you mean to be or not, you slip onto the side of the knights, the nobles, the kings, because they're the voices that you can really hear through authentic medieval sources. That's what the that's, These are the people, the sources, the, the chronicle writers are really interested in. And so you kind of tend to see things from their perspective. As soon as you kind of move the camera, as it were, onto the shoulders of some ordinary people, you see what a sort of farce and a, a kind of cruel... Um, Pretense—the idea of chivalry—is and this sort of uh, lord, literally lording it about that um, the people like the Black Prince and Edward III do, and the callous disregard they have for ordinary people's lives. All of this being drawn out of the historical sources, and then I've, I've kind of transmitted it via this this fictional story. I, I got quite um, quite uptight about mm. chivalry and, and yeah. nobility in a way that I'd, I'd never had been. Previously, And so the resp- it's hard to feel responsible to characters who are figments of my in- imagination. But certainly by the end of writing Essex Dogs, and I'm currently writing a sequel, Walls of Winter, I am um, very, very emotionally involved with these characters and very committed to, um, to their struggle.
2: My guest is Dan Jones. We're discussing his debut novel, Essex Dogs. You heard there's another one coming. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Dan, were you able to go to any of the locations in France you describe in the novel?
1: Well, the the first idea, the sort of first glimpse I got of the very first scene in the novel, which is this this storming of the Normandy beaches, D-Day style, came on New Year's Day 2019 when I was on Omaha Beach with some friends. I'd hired uh-huh. a house in Normandy near saint Lo. And we were walking on Omaha Beach. I'm sure some of your listeners will have been. It's an mm-hmm. extremely moving experience. The the war cemetery above it is an extremely moving place to be. You can't help but consider what it must have been like for people on these beaches. And the idea that I, I had on those beaches was, well, this happened 600 years ago. Subsequently, along came the pandemic. Um, and so it was only actually after I'd finished writing the book I went and walked the not, I didn't walk the entire route, I drove some of it because it's several hundred miles but I followed in the exact footsteps of uh, of the real soldiers who went on this campaign and and therefore my fictional Essex dogs um, and saw everything they saw and was relieved in one way and somewhat moved in another to see that it was kind of just as I'd imagined it you you'd see if you go to somewhere like Poissy on the River Seine mm-hmm. um, not far from you know not far from Rouen you see the broken bridges that were broken in 1944 1945 um with the battle for Normandy but the the same breaking of bridges had occurred in the 1346 campaign and mm-hmm. and so these kind of these eerie stumps sticking out of the water and and the the kind of the relics of a battle that was fought there only two generations ago. So this was a, it was a pretty moving experience to do it. And we made a couple of films, actually. They're on the History Hit Network, which is the real history that underpins the, the novel Essex Dogs. And It was, it was a, a great experience.
2: In your novel, the leader of the group is Loveday Fitz Talbot, who is really concerned mm. with bringing all his men home, making sure they also follow orders and don't go rogue. How did you come upon the name Loveday Fitz Talbot?
1: I don't <laughs> rightly know do you know what he he was he was love day for so long i they, I had pictures of these characters before I had names. I work in my office at home I have this enormous one wall is completely covered by a corkboard where, where whichever book be it a history book or a novel I'm working on is is kind of uh, the architecture the structure the characters are all there and there were mug shots on the wall and I drew a lot of these from medieval artists chiefly of the early 15th century, because the art becomes a lot better in the 15th century. So from artists like, what, Da Vinci, but principally from Jan van Eyck, the Flemish artist, I took lots of pictures from the backgrounds of his great altarpieces and paintings. So I had these faces, and Loveday had a face very, very early on. The name Loveday, I I mean, I honestly can't remember where it appeared from. He was Fitz Talbot because that's a that's a name associated with another part of the hundred years war and i wanted to to suggest a sort of um a fallen nobility within love day he's he's the leader but he's he's also one of his men but once love day was in there it' stuck and lots of people tell me now when i'm out talking about the book oh i've got a you know a friend called love day very big Hmm. in cornwall apparently i mean and so now i say oh yeah yeah he had a family in cornwall and he you know he (laughs) backstory kind of develops the more i hear about other people who've been called love day
2: how does love day feel about the war at this point in his life
1: he's over it okay so he's done and he just doesn't quite know it yet it's one campaign too far So the Essex Dogs, the the little platoon that he leads, have had another leader called the captain who's gone missing. In fact, he's abandoned them. And it's left Loveday, a deputy promoted to leadership, which he's very, very anxious about. And he's been a reliable soldier of fortune throughout his life he's in his early 40s now so he's he's cracking on towards middle age in medieval terms and he's fought in the scottish wars and he's been in france before and he's done a lot of non legit uh violence as in not for the king breaking the king's law all his life and hasn't really stopped to question it and and yet as he gets as he leads his men off the little landing craft Running, screaming up the beaches of Normandy on the twelfth of July, thirteen forty-six. There's something in his gut telling him, "You've lost your bottle." Effectively, you, you, you've lost your nerve, and he—he's this feeling pervades the rest of the story. He and he's a very um, self-effacing character in many ways. He's a weird kind of hero because he's—he's he's ambiguous about almost everything he's doing. His his one. Root instinct is the protection of the men he's led. He feels this enormous responsibility to protect them, even when not all of the men who are who are fighting for him are very nice. Some of them are outright horrible. Father, the disgraced priest, for example, mm-hmm. and yet he feels this this sense of a kind of higher responsibility for them, which in the shape of the story is is designed to bounce against the the, the sort of pretended morality of chivalry that the king and the princes and the nobles all all subscribe to. Whereas you see in them uh, a lot of fine words about um, fighting for one another, but absolutely nothing in practice. In Love Day, it's the other way around. He, he, he's often very tongue-tied when he tries to express himself, but it, you can what pulses through his character is this sense of, of, of uh, avuncular love for his men.
2: The youngest of the group is, is just 16, an archer named mm. Romford. How mm. does all the violence and the fighting affect the youngest member? Of the Essex
1: Paul, Rom- Paul Romford. You just say his name and I want to put my arms around him. He's, uh, Romford is uh, a sort of street kid from London and Southwark particularly, which is on the south bank of the River Thames. And in, mm. in the 14th century was London's red light district, if you like. It was where the bad stuff went down. And he's been dragged up by a father and a brother in the drinking dens and the taverns and the houses of ill repute in Southwark. And he's, he's lost his father his brother's disappeared and he's run away and he found himself on the ship going to France because he might as well have been anywhere else. He's quite dissociative. Um, He's very lost and he finds in the Essex Dogs, the only group of adults because he's still a child really, although by medieval standards, he is an adult too. The only group of adults who've ever really looked out for him instead of, you know, Mm -hmm. not caring about him or actively abusing him in some way. Um, but he's also, he's a he's dead-eye archer, uh, and he has, he's very good at gambling. He has a lot of natural talent. He doesn't quite realize it. Uh, he's sort of strangely ambivalent about a lot of violence, both towards himself and towards others. Uh, he just accepts that this is a violent world in which he lives, and you're going to be buffeted if you live in it. And there's a, there's a little bit of sadness in there, but there's also an enormous resilience. But he is um, what I would describe as a fiend and he's found his escape mm. from the horrors of this world uh, through an expert nose for the powders at the back of apothecary shops. And his is a, is a sort of mm. uh, as, he, as he goes further and further into this kind of heart of darkness of a campaign, he goes deeper and deeper into um a, a kind of savagery of the self, um, which ends up nearly bringing him to great mischief.
2: My guest is Dan Jones. We're discussing his debut novel, Essex Dogs. So this is a book about war. There's action sequences, but there are moments of quiet and, and reflection. How did you figure out the balance?
1: I felt my way, really, because you know what? I'm a t- i, I I'm a total beginner or I was a total beginner at writing fiction again. And so a lot of it was gut instinct as a, as a writer of history. um, I'm an extremely architectural writer and I do a lot of planning work and every book is kind of in its right place before I begin writing it. And it's writing to an architectural plan. I remember to go back to my conversation with George RR Martin, he'd told me there are two types of writers, architects and gardeners. And I thought, well, he must be an architect because he knows what he's doing. And he said, I'm a gardener. (laughs) What? Uh, And he said, I just plant a seed and see where it takes me. And so that was the process for, I found, was the only process I could work to for Essex Docs. It was a a real relearning of process as a writer for me. Um, And in terms of finding balance, the closest analogy I could make for you is that it's like hearing a tune. You know when it's got to be loud and you know it's got to be quiet. I mean... um, I was a musician, in, not a professional musician, but I was a keen musician in my teens up to my early 20s, and I listened to a lot of music, and I know a lot of musicians, and so the, the, the rhythm of music uh, has always been with me in terms of sentence building, and now i found that the rhythm of music it was really something that carried me along pacing the novel, that you know when it's got a crescendo, and you know when you've got to have uh, some sort of brooding, building, quiet, um, and so it, it real gut instinct i think
2: you fictionalize quite a few real historical figures one of the most prominent is edward prince of wales became known as the black prince regarded as a great knight. people probably know the image if you don't go google it now um but you don't paint him in such a heroic life what went into that decision
1: it's mischief, a lot of mischief, <laughs> um, and a little bit of, of the righteous anger I mentioned earlier. Yes. So, if you go to Canterbury Cathedral, in you know one of the most famous cathedrals here in England, where I'm talking to you from right now, you will see uh, there the Black Prince's glorious kind of um, armaments. You know his, mm-hmm. his this this beautiful, colorful breastplate and the plume on top of his helmet and so on, and all this sort of ceremonial armor. And his name has become a sort of byword for the glories of chivalry, the idea that knightliness was to be equated with, with high morality and virtue and glory and all of these things. And just this just kind of struck me as a little bit kind of cap-doffing subservient towards a man who'd been responsible for massacring entire cities in his career and who it's never struck me as anything but a bit of a brute uh, in all the historical sources that I'd read, and that he was being covered for by all the sycophants who were around him, who were, who were writing his legend as he was still alive, and certainly straight after his death. And, and I thought, well, here he is in the Cressy campaign, 1346. He's 16 years old, much like Romford. But he, it, unlike Romford, who's just sort of at the very bottom of the food chain, the Black Prince is given command of the vanguard of the army. He's notionally in charge of the front bit of a third of the army. And I thought, well, what would, what would such a, a person be like? He's going to turn out to be quite a brute in his later life and somebody, by the mm-hmm. way, who marries his first cousin. Um, and yet, yet what, what is the 16-year-old like? And I thought, I've met enough 16-year-olds, and indeed I was a 16-year-old boy myself some time ago, to know that... You give them a sniff of authority and power, and they really are likely to start throwing their weight about mm-hmm. being awful. So the Black Prince is awful, and he's completely, well, he's largely unchecked yes. by authority, except by a couple of the earls deputies to look after him and show him the ropes, who go way too far in treating him very, very brutally because they're sick of his nonsense. And so what you get is, is a sort of bullied bully um, who's afraid who's not self-confident and who's trying to overproject? project uh, who's not really got any sense of the worth of human life. And, um, to,
2: and, to, find, and to find out what happens, you have to read the book. Yeah,
1: Well, you have to read Essex Dogs, yeah.
2: Essex Dogs by Dan Jones. Dan, thanks for spending time with us.
1: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
2: And that is all of it for today. On tomorrow's show, we go back to 93 when Steven Spielberg released two of his most famous films, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. We'll talk about how he pulled it off. I'm Allison Stewart. I appreciate you listening and I appreciate you. I'll meet you back here tomorrow.